We need to understand through actual relationships, people on the other side of the traditional spectrum, so that we're not vulnerable to believing lies about each other, so that we can work together to defend, at the very least, our democracy. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. In political science, there's been a lot of debate about the term illiberal democracy. There's obvious ways why the term makes sense. When you think of somebody like Donald Trump or somebody like Viktor Orban in Hungary or somebody like Recep Erdogan in Turkey, there is something democratic about the energy. Unlike some other far-right movements, they don't openly oppose democracy. They often have quite a bit of popular support. They try to appeal to the people's lowest instincts. But at the same time, there's something deeply illiberal about them. They violate basic democratic norms. They have an exclusionary conception of the people, which means that the interests and the rights of ethnic and religious minorities don't need to be respected. And they often are not very respectful of independent institutions, making sure to undermine the rule of law, the freedom of the press, and all of those other liberal values. But there's also some political scientists who say that liberal democracy is a misleading term. And the last weeks make pretty clear why that is the case. When you look at Hungary, Viktor Orban is now closing down Central European University and making it very difficult for the opposition to speak freely, to criticize him in the press, and to organize. In Turkey, Recep Erdogan has won a referendum to give himself pretty complete powers. It's not clear that the opposition will ever get a fair chance to vote either of those people out of office. So why call it a democracy? I'll give you my two cents. I think the term liberal democracy picks out something very clear that actually makes sense. But I also think that illiberal democracy is a transitional regime. But often you veer very quickly from a liberal democracy into straight-out dictatorship. I'm absolutely delighted to have Francis Fukuyama joining me on The Good Fight for the next episode in two weeks. Please be sure to subscribe to get to that wonderful conversation. But I'm thrilled that Evan McMullen is joining me here in the studio today. Evan, the chief policy director of a House Republican conference until recently, was one of the rare Republican politicians who unapologetically stuck by his principles during the 2016 campaign. When Donald Trump became the nominee of his party, he ran as an independent, criticizing Trump in stark terms and coming close to winning his home state of Utah. But in many ways, what Evan has been doing since Trump got elected is even more impressive. While some never Trumpers have softened their stance, Evan is a clear-eyed and forthright critic. A few days before we are recording this, for example, he retweeted Ivanka Trump. Thank you, Prime Minister Erdogan, for joining us yesterday to celebrate the launch of Trump Towers Istanbul. Then Evan added a comment of his own. 
The Trump family administration has a particular motive for supporting Turkey's despot at the expense of American interests. Welcome to the studio, Evan. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start the interview out on a sort of personal note. You know, it seems to me that if we had met a couple of years ago, you might have looked to me, you know, in many ways like a pretty orthodox Republican. Your policy positions were very similar to those of many other Republicans. Mm -hmm. And yet you've gone very separate paths since then. Most Republicans have somewhat unhappily, but mostly consistently, stuck with Trump. Mm -hmm. And you've become the leading voice of the sort of, of resistance in many ways. What do you think explains that difference? Is it a political difference? Is it a difference of opinion? Is it a difference of character? You know, why did your friends and, and, and sort of comrades go one way and you go another way? Well, I think on a very fundamental level, it has a lot to do with my own personal experience. And, and it starts with my mother's family, uh, her biological family. She was adopted uh, ultimately, but uh, my mother's biological family fled Europe uh, during the time of World War II uh, from Poland. Many of them were, were Jewish, and they came to the United States to, to find refuge. And, and so that's part of my, hmm. my, per my family history, and that weighs on me, that experience. Then it's uh, you know, my experience as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. We also experienced persecution here in this country, actually, that forced us to flee to the West and to ultimately set roots in the Mountain West. So that's sort of the family perspective. But then I served with the Central Intelligence Agency overseas, operating in environments uh, in countries that were led or controlled by authoritarians or, or dictators even. And so I have this personal history, both familial and, and, then, and then my own experience with authoritarians, with populism, with dictatorship that informs how I view the rise of it now in Europe and, sadly, even here in the United States. Yeah, it is interesting that you're sort of the, you're the encapsulation of a sort of trifecta that I've been thinking about a lot through the campaign last year, which is that the three types of people who seemed clearest in, in distancing themselves from Trump were sort of Jews, Mormons, and foreign policy people. Right. And you sort right. of all three rolled right. into one. Yeah, exactly. Is it that in order to understand the danger that Donald Trump poses, I don't want to say you need, but it helps to have this kind of biographical experience of persecution uh, and the knowledge of how liberal democracies have faltered in other countries. I mean, why is it that these three groups have emerged as the most sort of resistant to Trump's appeal? Well, I would say, and, and I think some of your research, actually, which I've been very motivated by and talk about all the time, so thank you very much for that. You know, I have this theory that is supported by, by some of that, that uh, over time, we in the West, in the United States and in Europe have forgotten some really fundamental ideas that that underpin this notion of self-rule. Hmm. And they really are equality and liberty. Uh, yeah. And that's why I, I think you, you find people slipping into this place in both Europe and the United States in which 
they don't think it's essential to live in in a democracy or that certain very fundamental necessary elements of self-rule uh, maybe they're not so important anymore they never were important but we're sort of forgetting how fundamental liberty is protected mm-hmm. and how power needs to be divided and accountable and all of these things we're forgetting all of this and so those who remember in some cases tend to be those who have studied history those who have lived overseas in authoritarian regimes people who have come to the United States after living under that kind of rule or people whose family histories or religious histories make them very sensitive to these issues. Hmm. So while many others are not as sensitive, they remain sensitive. And it is my firm belief that over time, more people will be awakened to these issues. And remember, just as our founding fathers here in the United States warned, every so often we would need to remember the value of liberty and how to defend it and how to protect it. And I think we're in one of those phases now. But but some people haven't forgotten and others need to be reminded, and that'll happen. I think that's right. I mean, obviously, some of my research shows that sort of young people are less attached to democracy than older people, and and I do think that's because they don't have that biographical experience of having to fight against totalitarian regimes and taking a lot of the good things in the system for granted. That's right. And the hope is that one of the few positive effects of a Trump presidency may be a recognition that, oh, some of those things I do care about. That's right. And they can actually come to be under threat. Um, That's right. You know, but it's not just among young people, right? It may be among the political class as well, among people who live of politics in a certain kind of way. I mean, that's right. It seems to me that one of the reasons why it's so difficult to distance yourself from Trump if you're a sort of Republican operative or congressman or something like that is not just that it's self interested, right? I mean, I think if it's just, look, it'll cost you a hundred thousand bucks to do that, you know, perhaps some people would actually pay that, those hundred thousand bucks. But it's a whole social world, right? I mean, your friends, your colleagues, the people who you think of as on your team, who be people your life, might suddenly not speak to you the next day. It could be a lonely experience, right? And so, you know, do you feel like your whole social circle has sort of changed in some ways in the last six months? I mean, you're now sort of hanging out with a bunch of people who you wouldn't have hung out with a year ago, and perhaps some of the people who you did used to hang out with sort of don't want to talk to you? I mean, what's the experience like? Yeah, you know, I would say that it's different in Washington, but it's not as different as you would expect elsewhere. So I was born in Utah. I was raised, I studied in Utah. I was raised in Seattle or in an area near Seattle. And so, you know, my roots are in a place where there there are plenty of people who understand my concerns and share them. In Washington, it's it is different, that's true. In Washington, you have people who are vested in supporting always, no matter what, the president of their party. And right now, for the Republicans, of course, that's Donald Trump. And their whole, their their business model, their political opportunities, their careers, all of these things depend upon their support of that Republican president in this case, no matter what. In in that sense, yes, things have have changed. Relationships have changed and been strained. But it's more of a Washington thing than than it is a dynamic in my personal and political base, which I consider to be the Mountain West and the hmm. West in general. In a way that's sort of 
the inverse of what I was expecting, or at least what I would have predicted a year ago. A lot of political science shows that the more involved you are in politics, the stronger your ideological predilections. When you look at the 2000 presidential campaign, it's very interesting that sort of by the end, you know, if you were in favor of privatizing Social Security, you probably vote for George W. Bush. If you were against it, you probably voted for Al Gore. But that seems like a rational process, right? Well, that makes sense because those were the policy positions. But actually, when you look at it, in March or April, those policy positions already existed and there was no real correlation between the two. So it's not that you voted for Bush because you were in favor of privatizing Social Security. It's you liked Bush, mm -hmm. and therefore by November, you came to be in favor of privatizing Social Security. Mm -hmm. And the same for Gore voters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I would have predicted or expected that people in D.C. are like, no, this is my life. I'm a deep-down movement conservative. I'm going to stick by these principles, mm -hmm. even if it makes me unpopular. Whereas perhaps people out in the country might say, well, you know, I don't have such strong positions and, you know, Trump is on my team. So sure, I start to believe that, you know, we should build the wall and all those kinds of things. So why do you think it's sort of different from what I would have expected? Do you think that actually people have a deeper ideological resistance to Trump in the country than seems obvious? And then how do you explain that in the end, 95% of Republicans did vote for Trump? Well, I think in the primaries, it was 47%. So this is the primaries, 47% of Republican voters voted for Trump. So that was, you know, that was a minority. It was a strong minority. And it was, right. a, I mean, it's a very significant minority, but but it was a minority. And, and I, I think people, even in Washington, as you describe, resisted supporting Trump for a long time. But ultimately, when his nomination became a fait accompli, then people got on board. But right. they, a lot of people held out until that point, even oh, sure. Republican yeah. leaders. But it makes it almost striking, but in the end, Even more did. striking, right? right? Yeah. They did. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what I'm, I'm describing, is that the whole system really depends on you ultimately supporting who your party has nominated and ultimately elected. And so even when you were very strongly opposed for a long time, Ultimately, for most people, the fact that he became the Republican nominee and then president meant that in order for their entire world to continue to exist, you know, for them to achieve reelection, for them to achieve favorability ratings in their own districts, for their business to continue to succeed, ultimately they had to get on board with right. Donald Trump. But what I will say is that I believe that uh, there is still a, an intellectual consistency out there among conservatives uh, that want to see limited government, that want to see more power returned to the states, that are committed to free enterprise. And I am optimistic that at the end of the day, that wins out for Republicans. It, it's just a question of timing. I don't know how long that takes, but you, you see sprouts of it here. You see members of Congress standing up to Trump at different times right, right. for these reasons. And, and I think that'll grow over time, most likely. You know, it seems to me incredibly important to wrest the Republican Party back from Trump-like figures uh, and to make sure that those more traditional Republicans end up in control of a party because you can't in the long run have a stable democracy in which one party is not committed to basic democratic norms and to right. the rights of all of its citizens. Right. right? You know, I'm perhaps more skeptical than you about whether that's going to happen. I think that there's a real risk 
that this sort of nationalist populism will become what the Republican Party is. So I guess my question is, you know, I think you're doing excellent work in explaining the dangers of Trump and resisting Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, what's the strategy for getting back control of a Republican Party? How is that going to play out and how optimistic are you about it? Well, it's it's an excellent question. And I will say, I want to make clear that I do share concern that the Republican Party will have a hard time recovering anytime soon and returning or, or heading, not returning. It's not even a question of returning to something of the past, but moving in a direction that can allow it to offer the kind of leadership that I think this country needs, or at, at the very least, a more consistent, free enterprise, limited government sort of uh, party. I have great concerns about that. And what I would say is that if it takes a long time for that to happen, if we're talking about decades, or if it never does, it may never. Hmm. And if it never does, then you have the need for another party. Hmm. You know, the, the Republican Party was a third party uh, in the beginning, too. Right, right. And then it grew. And so, you know, parties have life cycles. They don't last forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I view the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, by the way, in the same way I look at companies in this one certain way. Companies start off young and hungry. They're right, inventing. Right. They have nothing to lose, everything to gain. They take a ton of risks. They grow. They invest. They grow more. Ultimately, they get to a place where in finance, we call it steady state, where they're only growing three to five percent. They're not taking any risks and they over time lose touch with their consumers. Mm. And that's what can happen to parties, too. And and they 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 are uh, prisoners to legacy ideas and legacy relationships, and they can't change. They can't offer better leadership or a better way forward. And that's when they get disrupted. So my point is just that if the Republican Party heads down the road of populism, ethno nationalism, pulls back on free enterprise, the free market, limited government, the longer it continues, the more likely it is, and the more need there will be for a conservative party to emerge. Right. If Trump, for example, changes the way he governs, okay, unlikely, or he leaves office, he's elect, voted out of office next time or leaves for some other reason, and strong leaders emerge from the Republican Party that embrace these principles that I'm describing, then I think it can be pulled back and with significant struggle head in a, in a better direction. But, but a lot of it depends on how President Trump governs. So for now, you think the best strategy is to find, to take back control of the Republican Party. But there may come a point when the best strategy is to give up on the Republican Party because it's become so deeply captured. I agree. But I would say that, you know, there there are a couple of things here. There's very important work to be done that is nonpartisan Mm -hmm. or should be nonpartisan. And that is around defending democratic ideals, norms and institutions. Yes. So we started an organization called Stand Up Republic that's doing that. The reason that's so important is that those things cannot be partisan. They cannot become partisan. If sort of basic governance, become good governance becomes a partisan issue, we are all in a world of hurt. So what we're doing right now is defending, and a lot of this is, I mean, it's consistent in my view with conservatism, with what I believe conservatism is, but it shouldn't be, it's not partisan. It, It can't be partisan. I think that's a really important point and something that I've been thinking about from from sort of day one of a presidency that, look, you know, I'm, I'm to the left of you on all kinds of issues, but we need to separate between Donald Trump as 
pursuing tax cuts and I think this is terrible and we should protest against it, which is fine, right? And part of your ordinary practice of politics is that you protest against stuff you don't like, even if you don't like it for partisan reasons. That's fine. That's what democracy is. Right. But you need to somehow find a distinction between that right. kind of protest That's right. and the protest that is nonpartisan, that is, no, now he's you know, not willing to release his tax returns. So he's doing yeah. something that really is a violation of basic democratic norms, and we have to stand together beyond partisan lines That's right. in order to stand up for those things. So we've talked a little bit about sort of the Republican side of the Trump resistance. I want to hear from you because you've, I know you've been talking to a lot of people who are further on the left, what can they do to support this sort of bipartisan effort? And what are they doing wrong? I mean, in what ways are they an obstacle to building that kind of nonpartisan coalition? Well, I would first echo your sentiments about it being perfectly fine for people on the left to challenge Donald Trump's conservative policy agenda. You know, I'm a conservative, so some of the things that he's done policy-wise are things that I would be in favor of, am in favor of. But you, the, the important point is somebody has to be there to defend this nonpartisan space around just good governance, around mm. accountability of the people, that sort of thing. And so on the left, I see, for example, there's a lot of talk of the resistance on the left, and they're resisting what they call Trump's agenda, mm. which again is fine. That's a democracy. We need a healthy debate about ideas. That's right. a good thing. But a certain element of what they're also doing is work on issues like the tax returns or Russia that should not be partisan issues. And so we engage with people on the right and the left. When we engage with people on the left, we're very careful to say with groups on the left who are being quite effective in their partisan way, especially. But we say that, you know, we are um, defending democratic ideals, norms, and institutions rather than resisting Trump's policy agenda. Right, right. Except there is overlap in of where course. his policy agenda may erode democratic ideals, norms, and institutions. And in that case, we can work with people on the left. How would you delineate those things? You know, just going through the first 100 days or something like that. I and mean, what are some of the things where you say, you know, you agree with what he's doing? What are some of the things where you're like, well, you disagree, but it's not a matter of sort of democratic principle. You just have different policy preferences. And what are things where you really think he is doing things that are attacking basic democratic norms, institutions, and values? Yeah, well, we, we spend most of our time, if almost all of our time, if not all of our time, talking about that latter category. Right. And th that's what we're focused on. And so I'm talking about attacks on, on the, the press, trying to undermine the press. Now, the press isn't perfect. And it's okay if you're president to say that you disagree with the story, that you think the facts are wrong or that it was unfair, that's totally fine. You know, the press does need to be held accountable. And, and that's through sort of a national dialogue about the effectiveness and the fairness and the accuracy of the press. All of that's fine. What is not okay is when you start to call truth and, and good, honest reporting and accurate reporting fake news, you undermine people's ability to identify truth and yeah. to listen to good sources of information that are reputable. That's a problem. So that's one thing. Attacking the judiciary, saying that judges are so-called judges, you know, that that's also unacceptable. Um, we also think, uh, 
you know, applying a religious test to people who may come here to the United States, that's also a problem. Um, lack of transparency, potentially working with a foreign power to aid in one's election, <laughs> that's also a violation. These are the things that we mm. are focused on, leveraging the office to enrich oneself, leveraging the office to drive business towards hotels or product lines, or obtaining deals from foreign governments uh, that assist your business interests, while at the same time then compromising on American national interests in order to achieve those personal business objectives. I mean, these are the kinds of things that we focus on. And we talk to the right and the left about them. To the right, we say, look, you may you may support some of Donald Trump's policy initiatives. We understand that. That's okay. You should do that. But that doesn't mean you have to go along with actions that he's taking that makes him less accountable to the American people and that erodes our ability to choose our own leaders. So that's what we say to people on the right. On the left, we say, we're conservatives. We don't agree with everything you stand for on a variety of policy issues, but we are going to stand with you on opposing these things that I just described. Right. Do you find that parts of the left apply an ideological litmus test where they say, we don't want to work with you because we disagree on those things? Or do you think that actually the left has been good at embracing that coalition and recognizing the importance of having people like you be part of this movement precisely because it makes it nonpartisan and calls attention to this depressingly long list of violations that you just sort of very eloquently reeled off? Yes, I, I think there there is an issue with that. I believe that what you see shaping up, which is something that you know, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on too, uh, because I feel like I've seen it overseas where you have an authoritarian come to power and that reshuffles the, the political spectrum. Mm. And so here in the United States, we're very used to thinking of the right versus the left. Right, right. But when when authoritarians come to power, it becomes more of uh, really the, the alignment has to do with um, – you know, are you going to uh, associate yourself with the administration or the regime in order to achieve some personal benefit for you or your organization or your state right, or whatever? Right. Um, or are you going to be the, the the liberty? Are you going to be part of the liberty movement, which right. I think develops? And within that liberty movement, you have all these different you, you have differences on traditional policy issues as we think of them, but you still have some real cohesiveness around the simple idea that we ought to be able to choose our own leaders and they are accountable. To us. So what I'm describing here is that is, I believe, evolving and happening in the mm -hmm. United States. Yeah. And it's it's something that's happening in, I would call it in the middle of the political spectrum, but not entirely. And then you still have people who are really committed tribal partisans on the right and the left who, and yes, it is on the left too, where they'll say, I, you, you can't support Evan McMullen because he has a pro-life position, although some, so many of these things warrant so much more discussion. Or, you know, he's a limited government guy. He's a return power to the states guy. Mm. You can't be on board with, you can't support him at all because of that. That, I think, is really dangerous and destructive. It happens on the, on the right too, which is why I, I spend time on the right saying, look, all of these terms, right, left, conservative, liberal, they shift around. They're shifting around a lot right now. The, what we all need to do is think about the principles that we stand for and right. remain fixed on those. And on the conservative side, I think that's absolutely critical that yeah. we remain committed to our principles no matter what.
So, you know, the, the way that I think of it is that in a healthy political system, you and I would be sort of political opponents, right? Friendly opponents. Yeah. yeah. Respectful opponents. Sure. But right. opponents. But opponents, right? yeah. At the moment, we are fighting for the survival of basic democratic norms, of That's basic right. democratic institutions. And since we are both committed more than to our partisan political points of view, to the preservation of that system. That's right. And since that preservation is now threatened, right. we are going to be comrades right. in fighting for it and fighting to preserve it and reestablishing a situation where we can again see each other as political adversaries. Where we have that luxury. Right? Yeah, we're right. fighting together yeah. for the luxury to be <laughs> yeah. adversaries to each other. <laughs> That's right. right. That's right. And so I ask a little bit about your reception on the left precisely because I think our ability to form that temporary coalition mm -hmm. is absolutely crucial. Mm -hmm. I think when you look around at the moments in which liberal democracies have resisted authoritarian threats and temptations, mm -hmm. and the moments in which they fail to resist, mm -hmm. a lot depends on whether that political coalition becomes reshuffled in the way you talk about. That's right. Right? I mean, you see you know, exactly, Weimar yeah. Germany, right? Right. Where, where the communists don't see themselves as part of a democratic front against the Nazis. Because from their point of view, the social democrats are just as bad as the Nazis. Right. Right? And you see other systems where enough of the opposition parties come together despite the vast ideological differences that they successfully resist the, the transition. So I think our ability to, to build that coalition is exactly what's going to determine how this thing plays out. I absolutely think that's right. And if we let the the slippage of democratic ideals, norms, and institutions continue in this country and become a partisan issue, then we've we've lost. If it becomes partisan, if that becomes partisan, and it is dangerously close to yeah. becoming becoming exactly that. In fact, you know, sometimes it, it seems that it has become that, where if you're advocating for, for example, Donald Trump to release his taxes, well, then that's not viewed as something that a conservative would do. If it become or that a Republican should do, then we're in a really difficult place. So what are sort of two or three pieces of concrete advice you can give listeners who, you know, probably mostly are left of center for, I'm sure there's some real variety there for how they can help build that uh, bipartisan or nonpartisan coalition? Yeah, I think it's one thing that all Americans need to do, and I say this as often as I can, is find someone on the other side of the aisle and befriend them and get to know them. You don't even have to speak, talk politics with them, but get to know them and their lives and so that well enough that you understand the challenges that they face and what they've been through and where they're trying to go, what their ambitions are. Because I, what I fear is happening in this country is that we no longer talk to people who aren't like us. Yeah. We're, we're very siloed in our daily lives. We live in neighborhoods that are full of people just like us, through, through a lot of in, in a lot of areas or cities, 
full of people who are just like us. We consume media that is written for people just like us. Uh, and we're all in these bubbles. And what's dangerous about that is that we stop understanding each other, even yeah. if we don't agree. I'm not talking about agreeing because right, right. we can have differences. That's healthy. But understanding each other. And when we stop understanding each other, we become vulnerable to falsehoods against each other. Uh, the, well, more specifically, falsehoods that have been weaponized against each other. And what that means is that we become vulnerable to demagogues and, and therefore people who would have it so that we can no longer hold our leaders accountable or choose our own leaders. And so what I, what I think, and, and I'm sorry for this long answer on this, but the, the, one of the main things that I think needs to happen is we need to understand through actual relationships people on the other side of the traditional spectrum so that we're not vulnerable to believing lies about each other so that we can work together to defend, at the very least, our democracy. That strikes me as right, that one of the really scary things when I look at the political scene now is the way in which people on both sides of a divide, you know, really think of each other as bad people, that their principles are so obviously right and their worldview is so obviously right. But the only explanation for why somebody might be on the other side of this is that they're not loyal to their country or that they're stupid or that they're sadistic. I mean, that really is how people talk about each other. Oh, yeah. There's something really strikingly worrying about that. And I think it has partially to do with the way in which the main fault line of politics have moved from economics to race and identity, right? It's easier to vilify somebody because you disagree with their view on social identity issues than it is because you disagree about the right corporate tax rate Mm -hmm. because there you can sort of split the difference and Mm -hmm. so on, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it goes beyond that. Right, there's something very deep there. I want to sort of broaden out the conversation a little bit. You know, it seems to me that sort of at the very least, there's two big structural drivers of the sort of populist energy, right? I mean, Donald Trump comes from somewhere, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think he would have been possible 30 years ago. That's right. So we have to think about what it is that made it possible. I agree, yeah. And it seems to me that at least two relatively obvious ones are sort of economic stagnation, the living standards for yes. average people on the one side, mm-hmm. and then sort of the challenge of living in a non-hierarchical, multi-ethnic society on the other side. Where, you know, unlike Germany, the country where I grew up, America has always been multi-ethnic, but it used to have a steep racial hierarchy. Right. Um, and now that that's increasingly being overcome, mm-hmm. you know, there's a part of the population that accepts that and a part of the population that sort of rebels against it. So the question we've mostly talked about is how do we beat Trump in 2020, essentially? Right. right? How do we re- preserve the norms while he's president? But mm-hmm. the answer I want to hear from you is, how do we actually combat some of those drivers of populism? What can we do in order to make sure that people's living standards rise again? What can we do in order to make people accept the idea of an equal multi-ethnic society? How do we talk about these things? Well, I, I think you're in asking the question, you've also answered it or part of it at least, and you're touching on the economic issues. I think those are the fundamental issues. Yeah, I think people tend to be less vulnerable to populism and ethno-nationalism when 
things are going well economically when there's yeah. I mean it's amazing how many problems having a job solves right and how many problems it creates when you don't have one or when you're partially employed I mean yeah. it's it's all kinds of problems and, and the they, kind of resentment it increases th- that's and the way right. in which it makes you focus on your racial identity right who are you you start to answer by well I'm white rather than by answering by well I have this job right yeah. right exactly exactly and you become vulnerable to uh, people who might come and tell you that the reason for your misfortune is somebody else who's not like you and because right. they're easier to blame so I think you're you're you, first of all you've identified in my view I agree with that as the key problem um, but it is truly truly an issue that must be solved. I look at, you know, I look at artificial intelligence and automation. Automation, mm. by the way, is really the reason for manufacturing job right. loss. It's a much stronger cause than trade. But, you know, in so many years, 10 or 15 years, most trucks, cargo trucks that supply very good jobs to people across the country, those are going to be gone. And, and other jobs are going to be automated too. And so this problem is only going to get more serious. I don't know what the answer is quite yet, but I will tell you that for those of us who are trying to defend liberty in America, that is one of the most important issues, yeah. figuring out how we respond to that. We should embrace the technology in, in but, as smartly as we can, but I, I'm not in favor of not advancing in that way. I think we need to do that. But that just means that we need to figure out how people are employed, how people work. We just we need to come to an answer to that. If we don't find an answer to that, we are going to be very, very vulnerable across the, the United States and, and elsewhere in the developed world, uh, very vulnerable to demagogues. I mean, I agree. I think that if the worst predictions of economists come true, I actually think there's little we can do. If it's really true that 50% of jobs are going to go away because of automation, I just don't see how democracy survives. Now, hopefully it's going to be... Well, it's very pessimistic. How do you do it? I mean, I I think democracy has always been a middle-class democracy, right? You need people who feel like the system is delivering for them. Yeah. And who, as you were saying earlier, have some pride in their work and have a dignity of being needed. Mm-hmm. Right. But I, I will say just the counter argument, and I tend to believe that, you know, like I've said, we've got a real problem on our hands here. But, you know, this isn't the first time in history when th- intellectuals have said, okay, this new technology is going to mean that people don't work as much. What it's ended up meaning in, his- in history is that we're just w- way more efficient and productive. And so I, there's still a part of me that is open to that. But to me, that seems, if that's the case again now, and we're already experiencing this, there's probably a lag in the short term and maybe the medium term in which people are out of work and that creates this vulnerability to populism and ethno-nationalism. But in the long term, do we settle in a place in which we're just far more productive? Right. I don't know. But we still have the short and near and midterm problem. No, but, but I think that, that is the optimistic scenario, right? So what yeah. I meant is like if 50% of jobs are just going to go and 50% of the population is just not going to be able to find a job, indefinitely, then I think there's nothing we can do to save the system. Now, hopefully that's not what will happen, right? Hopefully what will happen is that there'll be a real economic transition mm-hmm. in which, yes, over time, a lot of people lose the kind of job they have now, but they find new jobs, mm-hmm. right? Something that looks more like 
reinvention of uh, you know the spinning jenny in in 19th century England and so on. Right? Yeah. I think if it's that, then we have a fighting chance. But we still have to think about how to manage that transition. And so, yeah. I, I guess I, I'd love to hear from you. Do you have a vision of that? What do we do about that? How do we mm-hmm. try to manage that transition, assuming that it's not sort of the most extreme case when when I'm sort of pessimistic? Well, on that most extreme case, I hope to never find myself in a place where I think that because technological advancement has progressed so far that democracy is not a possibility anymore. I don't see that. I hope I'm I'm never believing that. I don't believe that now. Hmm. And but that's an interesting topic that perhaps we should explore. But I will say in the short term, I see a lot of opportunity in just being better about economic development in the Rust Belt and in the Midwest and some of these places that are have been struck the most. I believe coal miners can code. I mm. believe it. And we have this tendency in this country, and I, I'm, I'm starting to get a little emotional here. I'll admit, <laughs> the, the, listeners, the listeners can't see it, but uh, maybe perhaps they can hear it. But we give up on people in this country. And we say, oh, you know, the, if the coal miners are out of work, then what can they do? Well, we're just, we're going to have to support them because there won't be anything else they can do. But no, I reject that. I believe that coal miners can code. And uh, a lot of these states and communities are terrible about economic development. They don't have representatives in Silicon Valley. Other countries have representatives in Silicon Valley. They have they make it very easy. If you if you're if you have a startup in Silicon Valley and you need to outsource back-end operations or something, or certainly manufacturing, but also back-end operations, it's easy to send that to the Philippines or some somewhere else because it's all set up for you already. Strangely, in some of these communities that have been hardest hit uh, for a variety of reasons, you know, whether it's manufacturing or, or coal mining communities, you know, they don't – there's nothing like this. They have no representatives in Silicon Valley. They're not set up even though labor's cheap, uh, rent is cheap. So many things are very cheap there, and you can get probably a higher quality of work from those places. Sure, right. there needs to be some investment. But what I'm saying is – that in the near term, it's about education, it's about re-education, and it's it's about believing in people. To ask one partisan question at the very end of our yeah. conversation, I mean, how big a role do you think the state has to play in that? Well, I think what I just described is something that communities need to do, cities, counties, uh, states, meaning you know, not the the state capital S, but individual states. Right, right. I think they need to be far better at this, mm. uh, and I think that there's there's an opportunity for that, uh, and it's it's unrealized, and that's something that that I want to I want to help work on, and I'm I'm having conversations with people in Silicon Valley about this very mm. thing. But that's the short, near-term, mid-term answer. The long-term issue, which we may or may not have time to, to discuss it, but it's one that's perhaps more challenging, and that is that AI and automation are really just doing almost everything for us that we now think of as work. Right. And then we get to a place where we have to think, okay, is 
is work does work then become a different thing? Are, mm. are you and I paying each other for different goods and services now that are that that must only be created and produced and provided by human beings? Right. What are those? Is it art? Um, are they opinions? Is it advice? Is it? I mean, what are the things that we then pay for? What is work? Mm. You know, you sort of look at the tax structure again and. You know, Milton Friedman and other conservative thinkers had ideas about, you know, basic universal income, these sorts of things you look at. Um, but, you know, that the, that longer term solution is more challenging, but is something that needs to be addressed, too. Well, I love your, your PN to um, not giving up on people um, and thinking about how to you know, develop regions, which is a sort of technocratic term for really investing in people and giving them a future. And it's really been a pleasure to talk. And, and for me, the thing that, that stays with me most about the conversation is this absolute need to have nonpartisan cooperation on these issues, like like this conversation has been in many ways. Agreed. Um, thank you very much, Joshua. Thank you so it. much for, for coming in, Evan. My uh, pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Uh, lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Break into your neighbor's house and put up a giant poster advertising The Good Fight. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamarker.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.